Let's take a moment to pray together now. Let's pray. Father, as we gather for this hour together in worship, we ask for the grace of your Holy Spirit to be with us and to keep us attentive. Even though our bodies are here, it's often the case that our minds or our hearts are, are elsewhere, and we recognize this, Father, it's part of being human. So we ask that you'd give us the grace of attentiveness as we listen to your word, but don't just listen to it, put ourselves under its authority as words that come from you, that you might help us to know how best to live and what it is that your spirit is saying to us today. So hear our prayers because we ask them all in Christ's name. Amen. We learn more about people from the questions they ask than the answers they give. Words that Voltaire once said, and today's story very much revolves around a question and a questioner. Three of the four gospel writers include a version of this story. Each of them add in little bits of detail that the others miss. Matthew tells us that this rich man who came to see Jesus was young, and Luke tells us that he was a ruler. So the story is often called the story of the rich young ruler. And we know very little about him other than what we read in these few verses. Some commentators reckon that he was something of a show-off, trying to impress Jesus with his clean record. And others think that he was genuine, seriously trying to work out what life is all about. And that's what I think. If he was wanting to blow his own trumpet and impress people, he would have asked his question when there were lots of people around to hear. He wouldn't have waited until Jesus was on his way out of the city. When I imagine this story, I think he would have been hanging around on the fringes of the crowd nervously, as you do in these situations, watching and waiting for an opportunity to go up and speak to Jesus. That's what people do when they're around someone famous and they want an autograph or a conversation with them. But he waited so long, trying to screw up his courage, that the chance nearly slipped through his fingers. Jesus was heading off again. So in desperation, the young man runs up, kneels before him, and blurts out the question that he's been so keen to ask. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It would be much easier to understand what he meant by that question if we'd actually been there. How did those words tumble out of his mouth? How did he look when he said them? Was this all about self-aggrandizement, looking good in front of others? Or is there an edge of desperation in his voice because he'd been down every avenue he could think of and he still couldn't find the answer to that question? Well, again, I think it's the latter. This could have been an extravagant show designed to flatter Jesus and to make himself look important, but I think it's genuine. Christ was nobody's fool. And Mark tells us that having looked at this young man and heard his question, he loved him. 
Good teacher, what must I do to receive eternal life? Now, for us to hear and understand that question correctly, we need a wee bit of background. Because when you and I hear the phrase eternal life, straight away we start thinking about the afterlife, as though this young man were asking how he could get to heaven. But in the context of the time, he would have meant something quite different. The Jews had little concept of life after death or heaven as the final destination for our spirits. Those ideas are rarely spoken of in the Old Testament, if at all. In Jewish understanding, the consummation of all things comes not when we go to heaven, but when God finally comes to us. When the quality of life that God enjoys finally infuses and suffuses the earth once and for all, and the kingdom finally comes for good. So, eternal life isn't really a synonym for heaven. Eternal life is that quality of life that's characteristic of God, and which those who love God aspire to for themselves and for the world. It's life with a capital L. Real life, true life. God's life breaking through in the here and now. So when this young man asks about eternal life, he's really saying, how can I be more in touch with God? How can I experience more of his life within me now and forever? And I'm intrigued by what Jesus has to say next. Because surely this is the cue to launch out on a big discourse about prayer and worship and synagogue attendance and meditating in the Scriptures, all the things you and I would be saying if we'd been asked. But he doesn't do that. Instead he says, well, you know the commandments. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't make false accusations. Don't cheat. Respect your father and your mother. And you can almost hear the young man's disappointment when he says, Teacher, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. I've done all that, he says, and it doesn't work. It hasn't brought me any closer to God. There has to be more to it than this. And for that honest answer, and his honest endeavor, Jesus loved him. But here comes the crunch. Because all this time, Jesus has actually been setting him up. And he's been setting us up too. Because he wants us to learn the same lesson. Listen to that list of commandments again. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal don't make false accusations, don't cheat, respect your father and mother. Do you notice anything strange about that list? I have to confess I've known this passage for years and it's only as I've studied it in preparation to preach on it that the penny actually dropped with me. What I'd completely overlooked is that in this list, Jesus only mentions about half of the Ten Commandments. 
the ones that speak about our relationships with other people. The ones that he doesn't mention are the first four, the ones that speak about our relationship with God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not bow down to any other god. You shall honor God's name. You shall not worship things your hands have made. They're all missing. But the young man doesn't notice. And neither do we, if we're honest. And that is exactly the point. The way of religion is always to reduce faith from a living relationship with the God who made us to a moral code that tells us how to behave. That can't satisfy anybody. That's why this young man's heart was empty. And if people think that that's what faith is about, just a moral code, then maybe that's why many of our churches are empty today too. One of the sad truths about today's world is the people looking to connect with God often don't see church as the place where that happens. The very heart of our faith is the I-thou relationship that's expressed in the first four commandments. God calling you and calling me to reckless, self-abandoning love for Him. Without that relationship, our hearts will be as unfulfilled as that of the rich young ruler who came to Jesus with an impeccable moral record, but knew full well that he hadn't really tasted eternal life. Life with a capital L. In the later chapters of John's Gospel, as Jesus speaks with his disciples, he spells out for them exactly what eternal life is. Praying for them, knowing full well that the next day he'd be crucified, this is what he says. He says, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Maybe being a Christian is just this, wakening up to the reality that God doesn't want your mere obedience. He wants your company. He wants your friendship, your love. And He wants to give you life, His life. Life with a capital L. And once you've realized that, that that is what God is desiring for you, you're on your way. The Irish poet and theologian John O'Donoghue says, once the soul awakens, you can never go back. From then on, you're inflamed with a special longing which will never again let you linger in the lowlands of complacency and partial fulfillment. The eternal makes you urgent. The eternal makes you urgent. 
There's a question to mull over today. Is there an urgency in your heart about the things of God? Or is that desire, such as it is, being stifled by other things? That was certainly the case with the rich young man, and Christ knew it. His wealth was choking him. It had become an idol. You need only one thing, Jesus said. Go and sell all you have and give the money to the poor and then come and follow me. Only one thing maybe. But the one thing he found hardest to give. Now don't get distracted by the business of him giving up his money. This isn't a black and white statement that wealth is bad and poverty is good. Jesus knew plenty of people who had money and he didn't ask them all to give their wealth away. This part of the discussion isn't really about riches. It's about getting rid of whatever pushes God from his rightful place in our lives. For this young man, it had been wealth. Wealth had become an idol for him and he hadn't even realized it. For Martha, in last week's story, it was her busyness and her expectations of herself. For you and me, it could be a host of other things. Some of them beneath us, maybe. But some of them admirable. An idol isn't necessarily a bad thing. It might be a good thing that we're relating to in the wrong way. One of the phrases that used to be used a lot at mealtimes in our house was, don't fill yourself up with that. When they were much younger, the kids tended to dive in and gulp down their water and scoff their bread before they got into their meal proper, filling themselves up before they actually got to the real food. Here's a question that might help reveal some of our idols. What do we tend to to fill up on other than God? What are the things that in subtle and sometimes not so subtle ways tend to crowd God out of our lives? Work can become an idol for some of us. We work hard, long hours often, and it seems hard to find room for God in the middle of all of that. But is there a wee part of us quite likes it that way? Does that busyness help to keep God at a safe distance? Do we need to work quite as hard? Do we really need those things that we're working so hard to be able to afford? Maybe our pastimes have become an idol. We can't make time to read or pray or get to church regularly, but there are other things that never seem to fall out of the diary. Unbreakable commitments to our pleasures. We always find time to watch a box set or get to the golf course or keep that coffee date with friends. Or on a deeper level, some of us can make idols out of our feelings, our bitterness, our lust, our envy, our frustrations. They can take over us 
and end up dominating the way that we think about ourselves and relate to others. God takes second place to our concerns and desires rather than helping us to befriend those things and put them into some kind of order. We all have our idols. And God knows only too well what they are. Mark tells us that Jesus looked straight at this young man with love and said, you need only do this one thing. Give up your riches. If God were to hold your gaze today and ask you to give up something so that you could know him better, I wonder what it would be. Something material, maybe? A way of living or relating to people? An attitude or disposition of heart and mind? Part of discipleship is beginning to understand the things that function as idols in your life. And giving them up is never easy. But if Jesus is right, it's even harder to enter the kingdom of God while you're still holding on to them. Amen. And thanks be to God for his word.